Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 7th, 2023. Saturdays, at least in my household, are movie days, movie nights, at least. I'm going to my favorite local cinema where I have a, uh, a season ticket to watch a movie called Strange Way of Life by the uh, famous uh, Spanish director, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, uh, 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 Pedro Almodovar. Uh, it also features Ethan Hawke. Ever since my uh, daughter went off to college, I don't have to go to Marvel movies anymore. But it is Saturday, so we do have to talk about Marvel Cinematic Universe and all that kind of thing. Uh, everybody knows all about this universe and Marvel. And there's a new book, a mar I can't resist, a marvelous new book about Marvel <laughs> called MCU, The Reign of Mar Marvel Studios by three cultural and movie mavens, Gavin Edwards, Dave Gonzalez, and uh, one more. Uh, and that, uh, that one more is someone I'm going to call on right now, Joanna Robinson. Hello. Uh, who is based in Oakland. I'm sure, uh, Joanna, you're all too familiar with uh, Alamo Cinema in the Mission. I love the Draft House. That's one of the best places. Do you, do you go get a drink at the Baron Bowl beforehand. Yeah, I can do the drinks and the yeah. dinners and everything. I go two or three times a week. So, oh, it's uh, the best place. It's the best place. For me. And unfortunately, they do show Marvel. So when my daughter's home from college, she drags me to it. So congratulations, uh, Joanna, on the new book. Thank you. Um, I have to admit, and I am an old fart, but the one I am entirely mystified. Yeah, I can popularity tell. popularity of Marvel <laughs> yeah. movies. And I've been to so many of them. And it's my excuse to sleep for at least an hour or an hour and a half during All the right. How would you explain, you're, you're a cultural analyst as well as a fan and a critic, how would you explain the enormous popularity of Marvel? Well, I think I'm actually, I'm delighted to be talking to you about this because one of the questions we asked ourselves writing this is, is this book interesting to even the, the sort of crustiest Marvel skeptic. So if you are a crusty Marvel skeptic, then is there something in here that's interesting to you? I am the quintessential. I'm crusty by definition. Love I'm that. skeptical of Marvel. Love that. So, you know, the kind of person who wants to go to see an Almodovar short film on a Saturday is someone who's interested in the history of cinema, right? You are interested in the industry and what is undeniably true. However, crusty any of us may feel about the MCU, be you Martin Scorsese or otherwise, um, this is an undeniable chapter in the Hollywood story. This is a decade plus of dominance from a studio that starts as a sort of like plucky independent studio, gets swallowed up by the large machine that is Disney, but dominates the culture. Kids like yours are dragging you to see Marvel movies because they are must see. You have to see them, and we thought that was interesting. Yeah, we are we are fans of Marvel. We like Marvel a lot. We like the great Marvel. So not every Marvel movie is great, um, but I love a lot of them. And I think also for for fil a film fan like yourself, something that's very interesting to me about the MCU dominance is the fact that the head of the studio, Kevin Feige 
is not a comic book guy first. He's a film guy first. He grew up on blockbuster cinema of the 70s and 80s and really wanted to capture the excitement of those big movies. And he just happened to find his way into the comic book lane, but that's not really, that was not really his goal. So if you think about a lot of these movies, you think about them as his excuse to make movies he kind of wants to see through the lens of a comic book superhero. So my favorite Marvel movie, Captain America Winter Soldier, is just a 70s paranoia Robert Redford thriller movie, literally co-starring Robert Redford through the lens of comic books. So I think there's something in there for film lovers and for even Marvel haters, people who are aggravated that Marvel has, in their view, pushed out other kinds of cinema. I still think there's an interesting story about how did that happen? Why did that happen? Does that answer your question or... or, or yeah, and I, I, I'm not really a Marvel hater. I'm mm -hmm. mystified by Marvel. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Scorsese, or mm -hmm. I mispronounced it. Uh, <laughs> one of your other authors, um, Gavin Edwards, is... Uh, just watched a... Uh, how do you pronounce it, Gavin? Scorsese or Scorsese? But I've been pronouncing it the way you did most of my life. I only yeah. learned it recently, so I'm trying to get used to this new... Bit well, of you, you were telling me before we went live that your 14-year-old is into Scorsese or however you pronounce it, but used to be a, a Marvel kid. Yeah. Um, so did you have the same experience as a, as a parent of being dragged to these things or did you actually like them? Well, I uh, sort of had like waves of Marvel involvement. Like I grew up on the characters uh, and so, you know, have just like a lot of basic affection for, you know, sort of like, you know, the X-Men made everything to me when I was like 11 or 12 years old. Um, and then so when, uh, you know, sort of like Marvel Studios came out with Iron Man and then sort of like the first wave of here's Thor and uh, here's uh, the Hulk, there was this sort of thrill of saying that, you know, sort of they're getting these characters right. And they have this beautiful thing of this uh, connectivity, like uh, that, you know, sort of any one character can show up at any uh, time in one of the movies. And it's this great sort of sprawling epic. And you can't, uh, you know, there's tens of thousands of comic books. You're not going to be able to get that all across in a series of films. Um, but it is kind of amazing that they have the spirit of it in these movies. And so just as, you know, sort of like it rekindled, you know, like uh, the flame of like my childhood fandom. And I'm like, so it was always just sort of like, a pleasure to like see that being done by people who sort of like recognize what the fans wanted. And then I, you know, I might've wandered off, except I had like one kid who got excited about it around the time of the Avengers and said, you know, it's like, hey, take me, let's do all that. And then my younger kid, the, you know, just around the time the older kid got tired of it, uh, said, you know, like now it's my turn. And so it became a real family engagement and I was really happy to have it as a family engagement. It felt like it was the best combination of like, oral tradition of let me tell you like how those characters are coming from and what Nick Fury is like in the comics and them like sort of like doing it in a modern way and uh, saying like I'm going to dial into like all the fan websites and find out what's happening and to see just like it's a beautiful thing when somebody gets that excited about it. I was saying that you know sort of my younger kid a few years back you know we're on a camping trip and we're around the fire and I say Dash have you had a good year and he said yes I did there were three Marvel movies that's what counts. Yeah, my daughter would have said it's the similar thing. Joanna, do you have any kids? I don't. Mm -mm. So you don't even have that excuse. You went on your own as an adult. I Yeah, I don't know why you think that's so strange, millions of adults. I'm teasing you. So, yeah, so give us some background. The thing, and I'm not an expert, 
explain. So first of all, there were Marvel comics, right? Correct. And then what happened? So to give us a, a, a brief history of the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So Marvel Comics um, would be the first way in which these superheroes caught people's attention. And then there was a figure, uh, Stan Lee, who was a very important figure yeah. in the Marvel comic world. He comes to Hollywood in uh, late 60s, 70s and is pitching these projects as, hey, should we make a Hulk TV show? Hey, should we do a Spider-Man animated show? Can we get these heroes off the ground? He actually had a, a hard time many 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 of the projects that he pitched went nowhere i think the whole tv show is sort of one of the most famously successful versions of that with lou ferrigno you know all of that but um mostly that was a flop for marvel in hollywood then the comics go into bankruptcy in the 90s and that's a big part of the story we're telling because it is wild that only a couple decades ago marvel was completely bankrupt and they get rescued from bankruptcy and part of their let's pull ourselves out of bankruptcy plan is should we start farming these characters out to other studios to see what profits we can make for the films so you start getting stuff like wesley snipes in blade you get the uh you get the x-men in the early aughts those films starring Hugh jackman patrick stewart etc you get the spider-man movies with toby mcguire directed by sam raimi those are all going to different studios be they fox or sony or the hulk goes to universal and then at some point in the mm -hmm. early aughts marvel spearheaded by this sort of financial genius david mazel decides what if instead of lending our characters out we keep all the money for ourselves we make the movies we keep the money and that's how you get the first marvel studios movie and that's iron man in 2008 and that's when you get this this sort of mcu marvel cinematic universe connected universe of movies from robert Downey jr's iron man on and it just grows and grows and grows until Disney buys them, Disney buys Fox. And so now the X-Men that belong to Fox now belong to Marvel Studios. Marvel Studios makes a deal with Sony. So now Spider-Man kind of co, you know, they've got joint custody of Spider-Man and Marvel Studios. So Marvel Studios is bringing all of those characters they let out to play back home, growing their empire. And now they have, you know, leading to, at the very least, 2019 with uh, Avengers Endgame, biggest movie ever in the world until... James Cameron gets salty and re-releases Avatar, you know, but like that's, it just builds and builds and builds from there. But that, that is the, the oddly bumpy, rocky history. Like you would never have thought in the nineties right. that Marvel would pull itself out to the degree that they did by 2000. It could, uh, it could be a Marvel movie, couldn't it? It, it should be. <laughs> it's uh, a book bring, though. Uh, let's bring uh, Gavin uh, back in. Uh, Gavin, you're a, you've written a lot of books. Mostly about culture, our cultural industries. As an irony, I mean the the obvious irony, which I know you touch on in the book, which is astonishing, really, is in two thousand and eight, when, as Joanna said, uh, Iron Man came out, the beginning of this dynasty, uh, the reign of Marvel Studios, is described in your book. Two thousand and eight was when big media, big uh, big media, was supposed to explode, when uh, Facebook and Twitter and the internet was supposed to replace old Hollywood. But is your book really the story of the reinvention of old Hollywood as the new Hollywood of Marvel Studios, which in many ways aren't that different from the old Hollywood? 
it was fascinating like as we got into the book to discover the extent to which you know sort of like there's some ways in which marvel studios is absolutely 21st century uh, hollywood and uh, part of that is just sort of like the blockbusterization of culture that you know sort of that you know like they invent this thing of you know like they're going to have the biggest movie and every movie is going to be a sequel to another uh, movie and uh, just sort of like you know part of what like uh, you know mr scorsese who i love to death is lamenting is the feeling that's squeezing out some other forms of culture um but the you know it's interesting seeing that the way they put these together like they draw on a lot of the the models of how like the studios did it back in like the 1940s and 50s and you know some things are like uh, you know sort of like paramount pictures uh, used to have you know sort of like costumers uh, like edith head um who would be on staff and you had this continuity just in like the craftsmen who made the movies instead of it being a pickup game every time a producer decided to put out a movie so like in the case of Marvel, they've got a like a biz dev department, um, a visual development. And these are the people who are, you know, sort of like coming up with like the look of the costumes. They've got, you know, sort of decades worth of the looks of Thor to draw from. How do you want it to appear on screen? And so you have, uh, you know, sort of like uh, people who are like saying they're going to, you know, like we actually had uh, found out about something called the Cape Graveyard of, you know, like when you want Thor's cape to look just right, you know, it takes dozens and dozens of efforts and, you know, the ones that don't work, you're just going to stick in a closet. <laughs> and they have uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book is uh, the story of uh, the, the uh, Young Writers Program. Um, Marvel Studios said, you know, like, we need to make sure that the people who are coming in and writing for us know what we're doing. And so it's something that existed in Hollywood before, although it's sort of fallen by the wayside for a lot of studios as they do budget cuts, but saying we're going to take young writers, we're going to put them uh, on staff for a year, we're going to pay them not huge amounts of money, but like uh, enough to live on, and they're going to be inside, and we're going to get them going on, you know, sort of like idle projects, and they're going to learn from the inside, and then hopefully you know, like this is going to be like a lab of creativity. And so some of the things that, you know, like later became movies like Black Panther and especially Guardians of the Galaxy started off as just, uh, you know, sort of like uh, people tinkering away, like around the margins of the this big enterprise, not having anyone pay attention to them. So what are you saying then? I, it's not clear to me. Are you saying that this reinvention of old Hollywood in new Hollywood is a good thing? It provides opportunity for young writers? I'm not putting a moral judgment on it. I'm saying it's a thing. I'm saying Marvel has come up with an interesting fusion of, uh, you know, sort of like they've found a way to like march forward into the future, but that they're drawing on some of the interesting aspects of Hollywood history. Let's bring, um, let's bring your co-author back in. You mentioned Scorsese. He seems to be the background to this. There was a piece recently in which he talked about fearing for the future of cinema. He's certainly not the first or the last person to articulate these fears. Um, uh, Joanna, do you think that there's always this nostalgia for a previous age and there are always old farts like myself who complain about <laughs> things like Marvel movies? Well, wasn't Scorsese himself a maverick when he makes Mean Streets? When that whole generate when that whole class of filmmakers comes in in the 70s and shakes things up and shakes up the hollywood studio system you know i think these systems are constantly reinventing themselves something that was really interesting talking to john favreau who directed the first iron man movie um and has you know a, a great cinematic bona fides is he was talking about um 
the era of the Western in Hollywood and how mm. what the Western was a genre that absolutely dominated, nearly smothered Hollywood for the era that it was dominated. And so he was like, these things are cyclical. Talking to him a couple of years ago about, you know, these fears that the likes of Scorsese or Coppola have voiced about the state of cinema. He says, these things happen, all of this has happened before and it will happen again. You know, in the 30s, it was sort of the mystery, the mystery genre. You know, like there are these things that sort of take over film noir, hard-boiled detective, um, plucky, plucky investigations, uh, westerns, superhero cinema. These things just come and go based on sort of what the culture is thirsty for. And we all have our theories about why the culture was so thirsty for superheroes right now. We are right now. Um, in a spot where people may not be have such a large appetite for superheroes. That's certainly a question that a lot of people are asking. Are, is this the end? Are we at the wane? We don't, we don't know, and I, I wouldn't count them out quite yet, but there have been some pieces of evidence that say that perhaps we have already seen the peak of this. And we peak, are on peak Marvel. There was a piece yeah. in Prime recently about asking whether Marvel's lost its way. Fascinating conversation, very important cultural development. Uh, and I'm thrilled that we're talking with uh, Joanna Robinson and Gavin Edwards, the co-authors, along with Dave Gonzalez of the reign of Marvel Studios, MCU. We're going to take a short break. Um, I want to remind everyone that uh, this show is brought to you by Liberty's Quarterly. Uh, not very Marvel-like. I don't think they've ever run any pieces <laughs> on uh, Marvel or Iron Man or Ant-Man, but it's a good read. And I'm going to run a, a short ad for them and then we'll be back. I want to talk more about what Joanna called this thirst for superheroes. What drives that? We'll be back with uh, uh, our two guests in two seconds. Don't go anyone. Don't go and turn on your Marvel movies. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with two authors of a wonderful new book, MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios, uh, Joanna Robinson and Gavin Edwards. Uh, Gavin, let me ask you, Joanna, before the break, talked about um, this thirst for superheroes. How does this fit into the narrative? How, how does this explain the rise of this remarkable cultural phenomenon, what you call the reign of Marvel Studios? I mean... That's always been a thing. I mean, you know, sort of like Jason and the Argonauts, like that's the Avengers, like going on adventures. Uh, so, you know, like human storytelling has always had larger than life characters and who can do things regular people can't. And, you know, sort of, and it's even always had them sort of teaming up and going off and, you know, sort of like smiting the bad guys. But um, I think that, you know, sort of like, you know, this most recent uh, era of, you know, sort of like peak superhero is uh, that it came, you know, sort of like post uh, the 9-11. And there's a moment in American culture where like people want, you know, sort of just like really straightforward, you know, like we don't want, you know, sort of like shades of gray and, you know, sort of like, 
you know, like, uh, like 1970s, uh, like uh, thrillers that end with like, you know, did anybody actually win or have we just sort of exposed the seamy underside of society? There came a moment where I think there was a lot more hunger for, I want a straightforward origin story. I want it to, you know, sort of like express like a good guy and a bad guy. And I hopefully it's told with like verve and it's interesting and it's going to not insult my intelligence, but I want the stakes to be clear. And one thing about superheroes is that, you know, almost all of the time, the stakes are very clear. And so what you see now is that like from that, you know, sort of like baseline, you know, sort of like the human instinct is like, well, let's muddy it up a little bit. And, uh, you know, you'll see, you know, sort of like people deconstructing superheroes in both the, uh, you know, sort of like in the, on the page and on the screen projects like Watchmen or The Boys. And you see Marvel sort of like leaning into that a little bit themselves and saying like, okay, we're going to do our version, like Joanna alluded to, um, the, you know, sort of like three days of Cap instead of three days of the Condor. So, you know, there comes a time, I think, with almost any form of like storytelling where people just want to reset and get back to basics, whether it's, you know, sort of like we've had enough of prog rock, it's time for like three chords and punk rock again. But then inevitably, you know, it's like, you know, people are smart, people want to do things with it. And so they add filigree and they add complication. And, you know, sort of like we're seeing what where Marvel is going now and where superheroes are going now, whether it's a moment for another reset, wiping the board clean. Joanna, you, you talked about this thirst for superheroes. We've mm -hmm. talked about the rise of Marvel after 2008. And I think it was you or um, Gavin talked about this post 9-11 environment where yeah. people were looking for clear divisions between good and evil. But isn't, on the Marvel show, on the Marvel movies, pure kinds of escapism. I mean, a lot of people analyze the beginning of the 21st century, uh, all the uncertainty, the insecurities, the anxiety as a consequence of, I don't know, neoliberalism and all the rest of it. Um, it, it. One of the things that I struggle with about the Marvel movies is, if you like, their religious quality. They seem to uh, attract not just a religious audience, but an audience that treats them as a form of religion. What's the relationship between a Marvel movie and Christianity? Simple question. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, uh, you can extrapolate that out to any superhero cinema. Like you, you need to look no further than Zack Snyder's treatment of Superman and Man of Steel, which is just rife with, you know, Jesus on the cross imagery of, of Henry Cavill as Superman. So that is certainly something that has been on the mind when you're talking about these gods, you know, Gavin alluded to Jason and the Argonauts, but you can talk about your Judeo-Christian uh, version of that if you prefer. That f religious fervor around fandom is something I've been so interested in. It is not just Marvel, obviously. You get that with Star Wars. You get that with the aforementioned Mr. Snyder. You get it with a number of, of these sort of genre properties. And I have been thank you so much for asking, slow cooking some theories about this over the years when I bump up against a fandom that is so quick and wild to react to any criticism of the thing that they love and the way in which, you know, because Gavin and Dave and I are all critical of these things as well, as much as we are fans, we are also uh, journalists and we are also sometimes critics. And so we're not just swallowing this whole and I think when I have experienced criticizing something that a diehard devoted fandom loves, it has made me stop and think, why do those people hear criticism of a movie or a book or a TV show as criticism of them? 
they take it as I am saying they are bad for liking it, or I am saying they are dumb for liking it, when that is never something that I've ever said in my criticism. And I think it's because of the way in which we as a society have moved more and more online. We don't have those public spaces so much anymore, the town square, the institutions, you know, if, you, if you're speaking of Christianity, the attendance at churches are absolutely crumbling. I'm an atheist, that doesn't personally bother me, but as someone who thinks about the social fabric and where we get our identities as members of a neighborhood, members of a town, members of a church, members of a community, those communities that have moved online then become centered on, I'm a Marvel fan, I'm a Star Wars guy, mm. I'm a, you know, I'm, a, I'm an X-Men girl, whatever it is. And then you sort of circle the wagons and get, you know, almost tribal as we have always been tribal about our identities, now you start to see these these tribalistic tendencies crop up around fandoms. And I, I mean, honestly, it's been fascinating for me to watch in real time in in the you know in the decade and a half that I've been doing this as a career how much this has changed. We are talking with two of our leading cultural journalists and historians, uh, Joanna Robinson and Gavin Edwards. They teamed up to produce. Uh, wonderful history of Marvel Studios, the reign of Marvel Studios, MCU, it's out next week. Um, uh, um, Gavin, you talked about this continuity of the studio system with what happened with Marvel, but um, Joanna was just talking about this rather odd intimacy between fandom and the studios, or at least the brands of the studios. Was that true in the 40s and 50s? Did people argue over, uh, I don't know, Universal versus MGM or the value of Jimmy Stewart versus Gregory Peck? Isn't it different today in the way in which people personalize culture and these huge brands like Ant-Man and, uh, and, and Robert Downey Jr.? I think there was probably less awareness. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't uh, know that you had sort of like fans of MGM musicals like versus like fans of Warner Brother uh, <laughs> gangster movies like right. you know, like rumbling like uh, and saying um, that, you know, like drive by Cagney shootings if you didn't like the the other movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that you know there's always been this. I mean, you know, sort of like one of the buzzy words of the last couple of years is parasocial, that people have these, you know, sort of like the intimate connections with the, you know, sort of like characters and celebrities uh, that they don't actually know, uh, but you like bond with them very closely. So whether it's Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Star Wars or like your particular version of Star Wars or Harry Potter and the strong feelings you have about mm. that. But in the 1940s, it was sort of like photoplay and it was like a different, uh, you know, like there's tons of gossip sheets and it's all been sort of sanitized and boiled down into like more respectable biographies now for the most part. But people absolutely were like, you know, sort of, you know, you're taking sides on like a Hollywood divorce and you're, uh, you know, sort of like in, uh, there's a limitless appetite for like Hollywood gossip because those people are, you know, sort of like avatars of, you know, sort of like in a different way. They're representing, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like the human instincts in the same way that with the four Beatles uh, that, you know, sort of you can be a fan of sort of the smart one, the cute one, the quiet one, or the funny one. And, you know, like 
in that you don't have a don't have a deep understanding of them, but you connect with them deeply nevertheless. So you connect on a primal level. Joanna, we talked before about the religious quality of this. One of the things that strikes me, having been to many of these movies with my daughter, is that these kids, and, and they're not just kids, because I'm always astonished with how many grown-ups on planes are watching this stuff, mm -hmm. is that they, they, there is a, they, they read these things like a Christian reads the Bible in, a, in an incredibly sophisticated, complicated way. And these films are presented as multi-level texts, aren't they? They can be. I mean, it certainly depends. I think there are plenty of... Well, I mean, the, I, with all the meaning, which I miss completely, which is probably why I don't understand them. Uh, I, I mean, are, are you referencing sort of the history of the comics? Well, the history or? of the, the stories and the aftertext and the pretext and the yeah. subtext. Yeah. It all seems to require a degree of... Mm -hmm close reading or close mm -hmm. watching that I certainly don't have. So there are uh, innies and outies. And, 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 and the more of an innie you are, the more you seem to be able to appreciate these things. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that's undeniably true. And I think that's true of any kind of fandom. Like, you know, when you when you were talking about how far back does this idea of a zealous fandom go, you know, and Gavin invokes Beatlemania, which is a great um example but if you have to think about sports teams right that's you can go back to the 30s and 40s and sports teams and you know my you know i will beat you up in the parking lot if your baseball team beats me you can go to a baseball game and just enjoy the peanuts and the beer and and the experience of it or you can go in knowing the stats of every single player and what the larger narrative of the season is and what the ranking of the team is and all of that there are 80s and outies in every level of any kind of fandom and i think you know something that i've done in in my career has been trying to bridge the gap between innies and outies i've done a lot of writing and podcasting around here's the lore here's the background i've read the comic books or when game of thrones is really popular i've read the game of thrones books so i can tell you what all the context is if you don't have time to read it for yourself and that is something that has been in lockstep that sort of um cottage industry of explainer culture if you will has been in lockstep with marvel from the very beginning because i you know when i spoke to kevin feige head of marvel studios he says at the end of the first iron man movie in 2008 when samuel jackson subject of one of gavin's great books shows up as nick fury and says something about the avengers he's feige says we put that in there it's our first marvel movie we put that in there as a little wink and a nod to the so-called innies, like as you refer to them, the yeah. people who would know who Nick Fury is and get excited about that. But what he said is that weekend in Entertainment Weekly, there was a big explainer article about who Nick Fury is and what the context is. And Kevin Feige says that was a moment when we knew we had landed on something completely different than we thought we had. We thought we could just sprinkle these things in and if you were in, 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 you would get it. And if you were out, it wouldn't hinder your enjoyment of it. And then they start sort of interacting and depending on that explainer culture to bridge the gap. But again, if you just enjoy the peanuts and the beer uh, type experience of going to see a Marvel movie, that's there for you as well. So, Well, uh, Alamar, you can get beer and peanuts. So <laughs> you can combine baseball and movies. Um, uh, uh, Gavin, um, earlier, uh, Joanna alluded to perhaps if not a crisis, certainly uh, 
the reign is beginning to come to an end. Well, where are we in 2023 with Marvel? As I said, when I was browsing the internet, I found a piece, wasn't by either of you, on how Marvel has lost its way. In strictly commercial terms, are they losing their way? Are the, pop, are the movies of MCU, are they as popular as they were? Um, the, the movies are still incredibly popular, but you know, like they're not as popular as they were, especially globally. They've taken sort of like they're notched down. Uh, that you know, sort of like they're, you know, like they're still hitting number one, but maybe for not as long. Um, and I think part of it, uh, you know, sort of, it sounds like you're a little like dialed out since uh, your daughter went off to college. Um, so, uh, in broad strokes, um, that uh, they had uh, after. Uh, you know, sort of this 20-plus movie arc uh, climaxed with uh, Endgame and Infinity War. They wrapped up this massive story. There was a little bit of narrative, well, what do we do next? And they had, you know, some misfortunes that they couldn't have uh, planned for. Um, Chadwick Boseman, who played Black Panther, died. Mm -hmm. um, that was somebody who was going to be, like, the center of what they were doing going forward. Some of their older actors retired and said, okay, we've done nine movies. Like, you know, thank you. I've had a good time. I'm out. And then they had a couple of projects that were, you know, like uh, not as good. Misfires, fans didn't enjoy as much. And you could see that the fans, the first couple of those, there was like, well, we're still all in, you know, sort of like, and around the third time that happens, the fans say, well, maybe let's be a little more selective. Uh, I don't have to necessarily see every single one, you know, like, and you still have, I think there's a large audience of uh, people who were and maybe are Marvel devotees, but are no longer automatically giving them, you know, sort of like the, a blank check of whatever you do is going to be fine by me. You know, there's the sense of, hey, Marvel, can you make the movies that I love again? Um, Joanna, you mentioned earlier changes in the global market. I think, I'm not sure if Pauline Kael was writing about Marvel movies, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> she noted about the appetite for superhero movies. She said they're popular because globally, because no one can speak English. Mm. Um, are, are, is the text, is the language important? How, how would you account for the remarkable global success of this? Do, do most of the movies get dubbed internationally? Uh, they can do. It's sort of a mix. Sometimes they're dubbed, sometimes they're subtitled. Um, I would say more often they're dubbed. Um, but I think that what the venerated Pauline Kael is talking more about, even above superhero films, is just blockbuster cinema, you know, CGI spectacle, those sort yeah. of Deadpool movies that feel like you're the thing that's going to get someone to leave the house. And we should say this is the depression of box office around Marvel, which is, you know, still making a ton of money, not as much as before. Everything Gavin said is true. What is also true, I'm representing Dave here, this is usually the angle that Dave takes, is that uh, film going is depressed across the board, right? People are, are not leaving their houses to go to movies across the board. This is a this is a problem before COVID, and it has only been exacerbated by COVID. Even in our uh, Barbie Oppenheimer summer? I mean, but that, that was a massive exception. That blew everyone's mind because that used to happen every weekend. You know, I'm old enough to remember how that was every every weekend of a summer. And this is just sort of like, oh, my gosh, we had to come up with a really fun, culturally kitschy, double bill, pop cultural sensation in order to get people out to the cinema. So that was an exception. And before that, the biggest grossing films of the year were stuff like Super Mario Brothers, 
or across the Spider-Verse, animated films, kid-friendly, all that sort of stuff. That's what's getting like families out the doors. Let's all take the kids to the movies. But that decline of the mid-level sort of adult film that the likes of Scorsese, et cetera, and yours truly um, are bemoaning the lack of, people are simply just not leaving their houses to go see that. And that does, it does feel like the Marvel movies, the big tentpole movies beyond Marvel, feel like they have to deliver some sort of awe-inspiring visual and auditory experience for you to say, no, I have to see Dune in theaters or else I will have missed something about Dune. And I think that with Marvel, that that sort of post-language question you ask is fascinating to me because I had been uh, in the wake of Oppenheimer and Barbie, I was studying the Warner Brothers releases, film releases, and what had been at the top of the box office. I think Barbie is now the top, or right up there with Harry Potter in terms of like the top grossing Warner Brothers releases of all time. But right up there with them, right up there with them is Aquaman, which I think is one of the worst DC, well, Mm. it's, when you think about the DC superhero movies, Aquaman is a really interesting choice for number one, but it is, sort of a post-language movie. It is like a Lisa Frank psychedelic binder come to life. And so if you're just talking about pure visuals that could hit with an international audience, I can see how Aquaman found swam his way up to the top of the charts there. But swimming, yeah, that's the right way of putting it, swimming its way up. Did you want to add something? Uh... Oh, no, just um, the, I believe Joanna's right uh, the, with uh, number one being Barbie. But I will say, um, that one of my favorite uh, chapters uh, in the book was actually where we looked into Marvel doing so extremely well in China. And they had the good fortune of, you know, sort of like they did, uh, just as the Chinese box office opened up in the, to foreign movies, and they had like had an explosion of the theaters. That was when Marvel launched and they didn't have, you know, sort of like the backstory of, you know, like a Star Wars movie comes out. And there's like six other movies that you need to know that the people in China don't necessarily know. And so it was like an interesting, like- Is there any politics in this? Is there anything that might offend the Chinese senses? Oh yes, and Joanna, you wanna- <laughs> Wanna come in here, Joanna? Yeah, I mean, there are a few things that have happened um, that got um, some Marvel movies uh, banned from China. Um, any trace of any whisper, the tiniest whisper of homosexual content um, is is enough to get you banned, which which resulted in uh, behind the scenes sort of struggle at Marvel. One of the sort of first fracturings of the core power players that be. There's Kevin Feige, and he's got these two lieutenants at Marvel Studios. Victoria Alonso being one, and Lou Desposito being another. Victoria Alonso is a queer woman, and at a certain point, she's like, enough is enough. We, you know, we can't be so shy to put queer representation in our films. And when I say queer representation, I really am putting the bar all the way on the floor, maybe down in the basement. And we're talking about Paul Rudd as Ant-Man walking through the streets of the Castro and there being pride signs in the background. And in order for that to pass muster in China, Marvel is asked to digitally erase the pride signs in the background of a character walking through the uh, most famous gay neighborhood. On my way from my house to uh, to the Alamo, I always have to go through the, not have to, I enjoy going through the Castro with a yeah. lot of naked men. So uh, the Chinese should have to do the same thing. <laughs> well, but so that's, that's part of it. And then there's also just sort of 
fig outspoken figures who ticked the Chinese government off um, related to Eternals, uh, the director of that film, or the lead in Shang-Chi. There have just been things that they've said about the government, uh, the Chinese government uh, publicly that got basically essentially, no one has said exactly this, but have likely gotten their films banned. So whether it's the content or things that certain stars have said about, um, you know, your mileage may vary, I think you might agree, the oppressive nature of the Chinese government, that was enough to put Marvel out of favor with China for a while, and that did seriously hurt their bottom line. And when the bottom line comes into question, some of these old, of the oldest relationships that exist at Marvel Studios between, let's say, Kevin Feige and Victoria Alonso start to fracture, and Victoria Alonso got unceremoniously ousted from Marvel. This this conflict over queer representation was only one factor, but it was a factor at the end of the day. And I think that I agree with Gavin. I think that China, the Chinese box office chapter of the book is one of the most fascinating from someone who is interested in film history and um, how, how these things that we're not even thinking of, that are not even on our radar, are influencing the stories that are so important to an entire generation that grows up on them. You know, your daughter, Gavin's kids, um, they're absorbing these stories. They're watching these heroes. These heroes that they, you know, swallow, gobble up as kids gives them a, an idea of what a hero should look like. And so when at the beginning of Marvel Studios' reign, all the heroes are played by white men named Chris and one named Robert, like mm-hmm. that, that is worth examining who's making that call, who's deciding who gets to be a hero to our kids. And something that we love tracking with Marvel is this push towards inclusion. When you get the likes of Chadwick Boseman or Brie Larson, et cetera, et cetera, at the head of a, of a Marvel movie a little bit later into their reign. Well, uh, one more quick question and then we're gonna have to end. Fascinating conversation. Um, Gavin, yes. You're, a, you're, you're, you've done a lot of reading and thinking about Hollywood more broadly. How is the rise of the platforms, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, how has this affected it? Is one of the reasons why perhaps the rain is beginning to end because we have new, if not new kings and queens, new, new kingdoms. Uh, it is one which of, cinema it, lives and dies. It's one of the biggest reasons Marvel's had problems recently because, you know, like they have their own venue, which is uh, Disney Plus, um, but there's a lot of pressure from the top of Disney, uh, you know, like from uh, Bob Igar and Bob Chapek at various points where they're CEO saying, we need everyone in the world to sign up for Disney Plus. And the way we're going to do that is you know like we want just as much marvel content on it as possible along with star wars content and pixar content and so on and so you know marvel studios was set up uh, really well to deliver maybe three movies a year and then you have to sort of like when they basically double production by having like tv series after tv series it turns out that many of the things that they did didn't scale well that the like partially because kevin feige who runs the show was a very hands-on producer and there's only so much of him to go around. And so a big reason that, you know, sort of like Marvel uh, Studios has had issues the last couple of years is because 
they've emphasized uh, at Disney's behest quality over uh, quantity over quality. So you can see them now they're trying to like reset that and say, ooh, you know, like we've, we've saturated the market, we've done too much, let's slow down and make sure everything's special. Yeah. Well, the book's really good and you've mentioned Ken, Kevin Feige and some of the other execs. Um, did You had access to these people for the book. Joanna spoke with Kevin for hours. <laughs> Too long, Joanna. No, yeah, I mean, it was it was hours. I think yeah, a couple hours in his office. I think that it is um, always worthwhile to talk to someone who has ascended a ladder of power as impressively quickly and uh, undeniably as Kevin Feige. Just from a psychological point of view, who is this person? He is he is an extremely affable kind person that is not always the case as someone who sits atop a pyramid of power but you also can't get to the top with just affability and kindness right there's like <laughs> you have people to are be... always affable and kind until they're destroyed when we hear some scandal about them aren't they? i don't know i mean i actually i would I, I don't i don't need to curse them i'll knock on some wood i would be very surprised if anything ever came out about kevin feige but i think that um there is a political animal in there as well. And of course, like you have to be in order to get to the top and stay there for as long as he did. So um, just psychologically for me, it was really interesting to talk to him. Well, I'm going to enjoy the Alma Vadar film even more <laughs> having uh, had this MCU conversation, um, the reign of Marvel Studios. I'm sure that um, it's a wonderful new book and, and, and we're thrilled to have two of uh, America's leading cultural critics who are much fairer than I am. And I'm certainly not a leading cultural critic. I have to say, uh, final question for you guys. What's your favorite movie? The only one that I actually rather enjoyed, I have to admit, was Ant-Man because I understood the plot. The other plots are too complicated for me, but I enjoyed Ant-Man. What about you two? What were your favorite ones? Uh, for me, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, just, you know, sort of like it's... Uh it's antic and it's all over the place but like all of the craziness of having like a raccoon and a tree teaming up like a pays off in a way that you wouldn't expect you're a surrealist aren't you really when it comes down to <laughs> at art yes and joanna uh quickly can i just say i love that the almodovar movie that you're about to see stars ethan hawk who was the star of a recent marvel television series and pedro <laughs> pascal who was right. the villain in a wonder woman movie right. um, you've embarrassed me even more now. <laughs> but i i um I love Captain America Winter Soldier, uh, that 70s paranoia spy thriller. And then at the core, it's a, it's a story about friendship between the Winter Soldier and Captain America. And that, that really does it. Those relationships in Marvel, I think, are really uh, underrated sometimes. And, I and we've written off uh, Robert Downey Jr. as a classic white man. Who are your favorite no. characters? Well, <laughs> I did. Anyway, yeah, I'm just putting words into your mouth. Who are your, who, yeah, finally, uh, finally, finally, your your favorite character, um, jo Joanne from the, the series? Yeah, classic white man himself, Chris Evans is Steve Rogers, Captain America. He's oh, like, my daughter loves him. And what yeah. about you, Gavin? Um, I'm a big fan of uh, recently uh, Ms. Marvel, uh, you know, like in the Spider-Man mode. But, you know, she's like a young uh, Muslim teenager, like in Jersey City, uh, like uh, looking after her neighborhood. So Perfect for a post 9-11 America, right? Absolutely. Yeah.